Welcome to another episode of the Political Prisoner Podcast, produced by Look Ahead America. I'm your host, founder and executive director of Look Ahead America, Matt Brainerd. Today's guest, Sean Woodsman, was tried and convicted of for activities related to January 6th. Uh, in the process of all of that, uh, he didn't just uh, lose the fine and his period of, of, in jail, but he saw his everything about his life taken from him uh, in the course of, of facing the trial. Uh, so we brought him on here to share his story with us. Welcome to the podcast, Sean Witzman. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So what brought you to Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021? Well, probably a series of poor life decisions. <laughs> um no, I I had started uh, a media company in late 2019 after having kind of a successful run publishing satire and doing other forms of of journalism. Um, and so, you know, that's that's really what I was there for. It's kind of a, a kind of a long winded story, so I'll try to make it short. But uh, um, I had actually gone to Armenia in late 2019. I was working on a couple of different ideas for documentary projects um, in that country and elsewhere abroad. I uh, came back to the United States in early 2020 before leaving again for the United Kingdom um, and, and spent some time over there driving the country and, and continuing work on that idea or the, those documentaries. When I got back to the United States, they shut the world down. And, and honestly, I was considering going to Ukraine at the time. That was kind of the next trip. That I had planned was to actually go there for at least a couple of months in the summer, but that didn't why, work out. Why would so, you? Why would you go to Ukraine? Go ahead. Why would you go? There? Uh, I was I was very interested in what was going on, um, you know, with the conflict with Russia and and obviously the the political upheaval there. And I just it's one of those things about me is that I've gotten to the point where I don't really trust anybody in the media. So I I felt that it was within my capacity at the time to go and do whatever I could to get people the actual truth from all these different places. And so that's that's why I had wanted to go over there, was to just explore those issues. I hear you. I actually went to um, Israel and uh, the Palestinian areas for the same reason. But this desire to go there was long before the uh, recent Russian invasion. So that... Um, Right. Yeah. Well. Well. Kind of. Oh, unless you count the earlier one. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, and I kind of count the earlier one. So one one of the interesting stories that I had seen uh, that I was following through, you know, actually Vice News was reporting on it a little bit at that time. So, you ended up at the U.S. Capitol on January sixth because, Uh, you know, for those that don't know, I'm you know I'm a pretty nonpartisan guy. Uh, Full disclosure: I did vote for Trump in 2020. Didn't vote for him in 2016. Uh, but I did vote for him in 2020, and I didn't make that decision until I was in the voter booth. And in the end, for me, as a libertarian, it was it was a matter of national security. That's why I voted for him, which, you know, I'm not sure how well that worked out, but I, time will tell. <laughs> um, so, no, I was not wearing any Trump gear. And, in fact, I had actually done a lot of coverage of BLM um, protests and riots throughout the summer <clears throat> and actually worked with some people that were – uh, more associated with left-wing kind of ideology and Antifa and other things. So it was kind of interesting where after the election, and and we knew that there were problems with the election, um, I felt that it was only necessary for me to go cover that on the ground. So 
so that's what I did. I went out there in November um, for the original Million MAGA March, was covering that, ended up through a series of events uh, actually uh, running into Proud Boys, and I thought this is kind of an interesting story to follow because I saw how the media was portraying them, um, and I wasn't really seeing that on the ground. So really what I ended up doing was you know, kind of following Proud Boys and these different protests around the country, you know, from there to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, out to Phoenix, Arizona, when Giuliani was presenting evidence to the Arizona State Legislature. Interestingly enough, um, while I was in Arizona, I actually captured on my live stream an interaction between the somewhat well-known Baked Alaska and the more well-known Ray Epps. Um, so they were actually, they had an interaction out in Phoenix. That would have been November 29th of 2020. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so, you know, I was continuing to follow this story, went back to D.C., was there uh, during the December 12th rally. You know, obviously things got pretty heated in the streets that night. There was quite a few altercations between uh, BLM, uh, Proud Boys, different right-wing groups. You know, the, the tensions kind of between D.C. Metro Police and and Proud Boys kind of started to mount there. There was a stabbing out in front of Harrington Hotel. I was right there when that happened. Um, and I was also right there when Proud Boys Chairman Enrique Tarrio and others were there. They And a Black Lives Matter banner was burned. Now, and, so, uh, Enrique, but but you're not, a, to clarify, you're not a member of that organization. No, no, no. I was, I was definitely covering them as a journalist. I mean, essentially, what, in a lot of ways, what, but if they I can, knew me. If I can ask, though, yeah, what, a, what outlet did you uh, report for? What, where would you have been able to find your coverage? Yeah, so I was doing it all independently through my own media company. Um, I had various assets. Uh, when I was doing a lot of the BLM protests, a lot of that went out through a uh, platform called Denver Tribune that was on Facebook. Um, Another asset, Farmington Tribune. I mean, it, there was there was literally. Well, multiple, I I, just, I raised assets. the issue, and I just play a little bit of devil advocate yeah. because I know that yeah, a lot fine. of folks that got caught up in this. Want, now, I actually know a journalist, actually not even a journalist, uh, but somebody who works for a media company that just on January sixth was just wandering around the U.S. Capitol building, just wandering around inside it, uh, with, you know, and I don't believe with credentials to do that, but nobody cares because he worked for a media company. And who's never arrested or anything like that. Um, but uh, I also know folks who weren't necessarily journalists or maybe weren't journalists might be tempted to claim to be journalists because then it's like, oh, I'm covering a story. Because, you know, if, if, if on the inside of the building, um, there there were a ton of journalists and the FBI didn't give a damn about any of that. And not very few of them actually had the credential to be inside the building. So by claiming to be a journalist, maybe, they you know, you can be, you know, beat the charge. I, I you know, and but so I'm just qualifying that you are, in fact, an actual journalist with a record of reporting stuff in different, you know, yeah. independent as it may be. Um, there's bylines or even if it's just your Twitter account, like, you know, to some extent, Andy No does where most I, he does work, work for Post Millennial. I think he's got a, a credential from them. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it was mostly as being independent guy sharing things on social media. Yeah, and I mean, and part of the problem is, is that over the years I have actually published quite a bit of stuff um, uh, under aliases as well. So that's, you know, sometimes people are like, well, what have you done? And I'm like, well, a lot. Um, but it's kind of known in, in pretty tight circles of people. There was a lot of reasons for that, 
you know, because I did a lot of work exposing corruption in government and and other things. So, um, you know, there obviously there were death threats over the years, which was always a sign of success, in my opinion. Now, now one one but, one point of clarification: I, I, we sort of want, don't want to brush over this, but um, did you not, in fact, go in? You did not go in the Capitol building, did you? No, I I did go into the Capitol. Oh, you building. did. I was okay. Yes, yes, and I was I was in there. I can't remember. I think they clock it as like an hour and a half or something like that, that I was in the building. So I definitely saw a lot of what went on that day. And honestly, some of that may have been why they decided to charge me. It's really hard for me to sort through in the aftermath and say, well, is there something nefarious going on here, which there seems to be? Um, Or was it just kind of a matter of, honestly, a kind of a dumb mistake in some way? What do you think it is now? And then, well, I I mean, to this day, I'm still, I go back and forth. You know, I try to play devil's advocate in everything that I do you know, in order to kind of address my own confirmation bias um, in my work. But, uh, no, there's a, there's a lot of strange uh, situations. For instance, the Department of Justice, when they charged me, you know, and, and, and they've even said that I provided, you know, a factual interview at the very beginning. I was, I was very forthcoming because, again, everything was public. I, you know, I wasn't trying to hide anything. Um, and so they've said that I, you know, that I said factual things, but they took that interview and they excluded entire portions of it from my prosecution, which never made sense to me because they completely ignored my initial entry into the building. And in fact, it's a very unknown portion of the entire uh, ecosystem because right after the initial breach at uh, approximately, I think it was two twelve or two thirteen PM. Um, there were, there were two gentlemen that apparently found their way through the building in roughly two minutes and opened another door from the Senate wing from the inside. And as far as I know, they have not been identified. Uh, you know, I keep kind of looking for them and all of the, well, I mean, all you it. said that they didn't yeah. bring, they didn't bring up your breach in their persecution, uh, prosecution of you. Well, whatever you want to call it either way. Well, right? but, yeah, well, they, this, this entire story that I'm saying right now, they never ever brought it up in the prosecution. But, well, why would, they ignored why, it. why would they need to, if they're basically you were inside the building and, uh, you took the deal, right? Where they initially got charged with multiple things, and then uh, you just—they said, you know, take the deal. You get just hit with parading, and you know. Well, yeah, and it was a long process of negotiation, and there were a lot of problems with that, all the way up to you know, I basically discovered at some point that my attorney had been working against my best interests, um, and didn't really find a way to try to rectify that until very late in the game. Did you have and a public so that pretender? Is what it is. No, I did not. I I had a paid attorney who Oof. actually, you know, should have been very good and very qualified. But, you know, in retrospect, I look at that and I obviously was not at all happy. Who was with, it? Uh, the services. Uh, his name's Guy Wilmack out of Houston. How'd you find him? Uh, actually, J.D. Rivera, another guy who was there who's now serving eight months in prison, um, you know, had told me that that's who he was using. And I've become, you know, very close friends with J.D. Rivera throughout all of this. And uh, and he said, you know, this is who I'm. And, you know, at the time, it's like, OK, sounds good. The money seemed, you know, appropriate. It wasn't the cheapest. And and uh, so that's what I went with. So uh, so that, that kind of is what it is. Right. Right. So um, you ultimately uh, you know, uh, took the deal that ended up, you know, I think that they wanted the prosecutors wanted. It was odd to me. It's the prosecutors. Well, you took the deal on the plea, but not on what you were, the uh, what you were sentenced to. Um, 
so the the prosecutors wanted more, but the judge actually gave you less than what the prosecutors asked for. Is that right? Well, yeah, that is right. And see, that was kind of part of the whole process, because when I actually fired the other attorney, it's because he would not represent my position at all in our defendant's sentencing memorandum. He was not interested in it. In fact, he put factual inaccuracies and filed it, and there were lots of problems. And so, you know, I had wanted to address a lot of the falsehoods that were being purported by the U.S. attorney in their memorandum because it was just factually inaccurate, you know, right down to what I'm talking about when they describe, you know, the statement of facts and they completely ignored that I initially entered through a door that was open from the inside. They then moved to a second entry that I had and they and they said that that was my first entry into the building. So there were lots of factual inaccuracies that needed to be addressed all the way up to and including their uh, disparagement of speech that I used on a podcast later as some sort of element of the crime. You know, there was things that I was willing to agree to, and the U.S. attorney in the negotiations had agreed to them. Even sitting across the table from me, U.S. US attorney, assistant U.S. attorney Christopher Amore, told me when I sat across the table from him in Newark, New Jersey, he said, Mr. Witzman, we understand you're a journalist. This is about, you know, looking at the law and saying, you know, are the elements there? Would the prosecutor you know, acknowledge like that. that you were a journalist? <clears throat> yeah, he did privately and i know these these guys can lie and do whatever they yeah. want to get their desired result i, I recognize now if you that. lie you get prison time but they can lie oh, I, absolutely. that's just the way that's, absolutely um let's talk a little bit about uh what this has cost you because it was certainly more than uh the 500 dollars, two years of probation and uh seven days of intermittent confinement and i guess 60 hours of community service um yeah Oh, we'll get back to that part of it, but what else did it cost you? Well, I mean, throughout the process, obviously, I was slandered uh, in in lots of media, especially locally to where I was. And a lot of how I had funded my work as I started to get my media business off of the ground was, was through a very successful plumbing business that I'd built through the years prior to that. So, um, you know, that got destroyed. Um, you know, I used to do these very kind of uh, intricate um, you know, hydronic heating boiler jobs. That's when I would pick up my tools. Most of the time I was pushing paper. Um, but I would do these really good jobs of, you know, mechanical engineering and stuff. And that all went away because, you know, most of that business was in a very liberal um, locale. So, so that disappeared. The business, you know, became insolvent. I was no longer able to get lines of credit or anything else because all that was on hold because of the federal investigation. Um, so couldn't couldn't get banking services essentially, and the business you get, became insolvent. You couldn't get banking yeah. services. You couldn't get a line of credit. I couldn't get. I couldn't. Well, to me, that's banking services that I okay. would have normally gotten. I, I mean, yeah. I had a great credit score prior to this. That's all gone now. Um, you know, it destroyed everything all the way up to the point where my last ditch effort to try to do whatever I could was to sell my home. Uh, sold my home, and and of course, you know that didn't work out for a variety of reasons. But uh, yeah, lost everything. And at this did point, you consider, I owe my truck. And go ahead. But did you consider filing for bankruptcy? Would that have helped? Well, yeah, no. I mean, bankruptcy wouldn't have helped. I mean, at some point, you're still dealing with issues of cash flow. Right. So as far as as far as that goes, it's kind of like it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what are you going to do? So. You know, it's still ongoing, and as I think we all know, or anybody who's been through bankruptcy, you know, you've got to have money to, to even do that. Well, yeah, because uh, appropriately, it, right? So, tell yeah. me, tell me a little bit more about your profession. 
uh, which one? Well, <laughs> um, what you would like to be doing for a living right now? Well, what can't. I'm doing now, what I'm doing now, and actually I've, you know, I recently, because of the conditions of my probation, I'm required to have a W-2 job, which I haven't had for, for years. Um, so, but, uh, Trinidad, well, hold, hold on, hold was, on. Go ahead. The probation requires you to have a W-2 job? Correct. So you can't take a te any contract work? Well, I can take contract work, but I'm required to have 30 hours per week uh, with a W-2. So, so that was kind of a, a tricky requirement and all of it because I why, do a lot of Why do they require that for probation? Because they need you to not be unemployed? Yeah, it's basically employment requirements, and they don't want to have to do a bunch of extra work is my understanding. I, you know, it is what it is. Well, I mean, it, I guess a, that's a really harsh requirement, but I assume, though, what you could do is, uh, I mean, set up your own LLC or S-Corp and then get yourself a W-2 through them. And then the, well, they yeah, they wouldn't even allow that because I've had my own LLC, like I say, through my media company for some time that I've done lots of work through. And uh, and they, they it has to have like a independent supervisor. There's just a whole bunch of stuff. So it wasn't workable. Are, are there any but are, so but you have this problem solved for now because you're working for somebody, right? I do. I do. I do. I'm working with Trinis Evans and condemnedusa.org. So I'm going to be releasing a lot of articles and doing a lot of investigative work. Uh, for him. So he's really come through in a pinch and, and, you know, I, you know, obviously he, you know, he can't pay me a lot. He's building his organization, but I, I believe in his mission. I, I've known him well throughout the summer, um, different things that I covered across the country. And so I'm real comfortable there as far as knowing that I can kind of retain my independence as a journalist and continue to do good work without somebody, you know, trying to push a narrative on me. Okay. Okay, what what I just and I'm just curious, what was your um, uh, profession before all this stuff came down? Or were you supporting yourself entirely as a journalist, or was there some other work that you just can't do anymore? Because no, like no, like I say, I had I had owned and operated a very successful plumbing business for years, but like I say, that's gone now. Um, I had to leave New Mexico where I lived, and after selling my house, move across the country. I'm actually living in a camper trailer in my parents' yard at the age of forty and trying very hard to get out of it. So, you know, those those were the consequences of really trying to fight this machine. Uh, you know, I uh, obviously what you've been through is a lot. You've taken a really hard knock in life. But one thing I can perceive just for our conversation is that you're, uh, you're, you're, you've been beaten, but you're not broken. Uh, oh, absolutely. There's no way they're going to, you know, it's like I said, I, you know, and, and I know I sent uh, along when we were getting ready to do this, I sent along an article that I wrote that got published in Gateway Pundit uh, called Seven Days Isn't Enough. And I encourage people to go read that because that really encapsulates my attitude towards everything I've been through and how I intend to push forward, uh, keep fighting and dig deeper. Okay. All right. Now, if somebody wants to help you out, what's the best way to do that? Uh, definitely, you know, follow me on Twitter, share my work. I've got some great stuff I'm working on, you know, at condemnedusa.org. We're going to be releasing an article where I did a deep dive into the history and the legacy of brutality in regards to D.C. Metropolitan Police. Uh, I'm working on a major story right now um, in regards to the Vorherrschaft Division and how the U.S. Secret Service informed various law enforcement agencies around Washington, D.C., 
that there were legitimate threats and that intelligence was kicked up to the proper channels and down to law enforcement, and they did nothing about it. And so we're going to dig into why that was, and so that's something big I'll be working on. So support that work there. And again, if people go to find that Gateway Pundit article, there'll be links there to a Gibson Go that kind of helps me, you know, uh, get back everything I've lost, hopefully, and keep working. And, and you know, in full transparency, just so everybody knows, uh, it's it's kind of funny where I get some calls sometimes and people say, who is Tribune Media International? Uh, well, that's my company, and so those donations do go directly into that bank account, so people will see that on their credit card if they contribute there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm doing everything I can every day, reinvesting, you know, money into my work and, and doing whatever I can to bring the truth of January 6th to the, to the wider public. Okay. That's, look, I'm glad that, uh, you're still fighting. And one of the things that the audience here is familiar with me saying is that I reflect on a lot of the people who've done, uh, had great impact on the trajectory of their nation. And among those people, uh, you'll find many who spent time in prison, uh, often, again, for uh, not anything they actually did, but because of their political beliefs. And I think that you are probably one of those people who, were, again, were persecuted because of your political beliefs. Uh, you didn't do anything different than the Code Pinkers did, uh, who were fined 50 bucks and released on the same day to do it all over again. Uh, but because... Again, they needed to create this narrative of there being an insurrection. Uh, you were scapegoated and had to pay a very steep price for it. So I'm glad to see that you are not letting it uh, hold you back, but instead you're, you're turning it into something uh, ultimately positive. Um, and uh, I look forward to, to reading your, your reporting on those issues. I encourage everybody to visit uh, the news websites that, and, and other links uh, about you that will be in the description of the podcast. So thank you for joining us, Sean. Uh, this is Matt Brainerd. Thanks for joining us uh, this episode. Uh, we're very grateful to our audience. You can also help out Look Ahead America sustain this podcast by contributing at lookaheadamerica.org as well as signing up for our newsletter or to volunteer to stay in the loop on all the uh, important activities uh, that Look Ahead America undertakes. This is Matt Brainerd, America First. America forever.